I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, welcome to Heart of the Matter. My name is Mark Pizzano. I'll be your host this evening. I'd like to thank Sean for having me back. We have a great two-hour show for you tonight. We have Matt Slick with CARM, as well as our own pastor teacher, Sean McCraney, here. Tonight, through this discussion, we're, we're hoping we'll have a better understanding of Calvinism. And uh, Matt, would it be safe to say that you're a follower of John Calvin or the Five well, points or tulip? No, I don't follow anybody except Jesus Christ. Just Jesus. And, uh, Calvinism Amen. is just an act, just a, a short-term word for the doctrines of grace that we use. Amen. For those of you that uh, are familiar with campus or watch HOTM, uh, we are aware that uh, Sean is definitely not a follower. I think that'd be safe to say, Sean. Of Calvinism, yeah. <laughs> of Calvinism or yeah. the five points of tulip. Yeah. Uh, reconciliationist, I yes, think we, yes, would, we would consider, Sean. Um, so we're going to get underway here pretty quick. Um, but what we'd like to do is start with a song. We're going to start with Romans 6, 2, 3, and then we'll go into a prayer, and then we'll get underway. So if, uh, are we ready with the... Excellent. Yeah. 
Carnita, my dear. Father God, we, we thank you. We love you. We praise your holy name. Lord, we pray that your spirit of love falls on this setting and bring us to an understanding of your grace and your love and what you would have us to do as the bride of Christ. Once again, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. Hallelujah to your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, Marnita. Now, for those of you that are just tuning in, we have Matt Slick with us this evening. He is the founder and president of CARM. He also uh, has a, a talk show, Matt Slick Live, that uh, it's a weekly radio show. Uh, welcome, Matt. Uh, could you take a second and maybe just tell us about CARM? Uh, CARM is the uh, Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, and this October will be 20 years old. And I started it on a whim. I remember talking to my wife one day and saying, hey, can I get on this, this internet? And she said, what's the internet? And uh, I started a website, and long story short, now it gets two million page views um, a month. I have, I don't know, it's down to about 5,000 emails to answer. That's pretty good. So it's been quite busy. And what I do is I defend the Christian faith, teach theology, deal with Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, Unity, Baha'i, Islam, Atheism, Agnosticism, and all kinds of isms and istics, and try and point people to Jesus Christ. And that's what I try and do in CARM. Thanks, Matt. So tonight, there are five points of Calvinism, or the tulip, and uh, Sean and Matt will be focusing on uh, the first point, which is uh, total depravity or total, total inability. And so uh, we're going to start with Matt. He's going to have 40 minutes, and then uh, we'll follow up with a short break, and then we'll go right to Sean. He will have 40 minutes, and then we'll come back for some Q&A. So, Matt, All the right. stage is yours. Let's go for it. Okay. Let me see. I'm going to stand up now. Maybe I can move this down here because I like to move. Is this okay to do? All right. No, because I'm on a light. Oh, man. Look at the camera. I'm back here. All right, just to let you know, uh, I have a Master's of Divinity from Westminster Theological Seminary, one of the top Calvinist seminaries in the country. And I went there because God basically forced me to go. That's, that's a story. You know, God arranges circumstances. I wasn't a Calvinist, a full five-pointer when I graduated, but I did learn a, a lot about it. And I learned what it is. And over the years, as I became fully Reformed, uh, I have learned to defend the position, I think, pretty well. I hope to accurately represent it. So tonight, as, uh, as Sean asked me to do, is to defend the idea of the Reformed perspective of what's called total depravity. So if you don't mind, what I'm going to do is go through some scriptures. I'll go through some stuff slowly, not because you're dumb, but because sometimes these concepts can be a little bit difficult to grasp. And what I want to do probably here is deal with the very nature and the essence of God himself as well. And through this process, I hope to teach you some stuff, and then we'll see how things go, and we'll see if I succeed or not. So nevertheless, uh, just so you know, I do not follow John Calvin I hardly have ever read John Calvin. John Calvin was not perfect. He's not my Messiah. He's not my teacher. He's not my leader. My leader is Jesus Christ, and I follow him, and I honestly believe that the Scriptures teach what's equivalently called the five points of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace or Reformed theology. And I honestly believe that. And I don't have any problem with people disagreeing with me. In fact, my wife and I, we've been married 28 years. I think about five, eight years ago I asked her, so are you a Calvinist? And she said, yeah. Well, okay. 
I mean, I didn't even know, and it wasn't that big of a deal to me, but because of my apologetics, because I defend the faith, and because of my radio show, people call up, I get challenged a lot. So let's see how I do with that. So you ready? I guess not. Let's try this again. Are you ready? Yeah. All right, all right, because you're predestined to say that. All right, now, total depravity. Now remember, Calvinism is often, I, I prefer Reformed theology, but we're going to say Calvinism. T-U-L-I-P, all right? T-U-L-I-P. What that means is total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, one of my favorite topics, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And so what I hope to do is go through T with Sean tonight, and we'll see. And by his disagreeing with me, incidentally, that proves total depravity is true, just so you know. <laughs> So uh, that's how it works. What is total depravity? <clears throat> total depravity is the teaching that all of what we are, heart, soul, mind, body, emotions, everything, has been touched by sin. Totally, completely, all of what we are is affected by sin. It does not say that we are as bad as we can be. Like, I don't go around murdering and raping and pillaging, and neither does Sean. And, and even an unbeliever who you know, might be an atheist, and I know lots of atheists who are decent people, they're not as bad as they could be, but they are totally depraved, just as I'm totally depraved, but I'm also regenerated, justified. That's more theology. So what that means is, in total depravity, again, all of what you are has been affected by sin, been touched by sin. I mean, my body, I have a bad bone back here. My heart skips every now and then. I'm getting older. I'm a little more creaky. You know how that is. Mentally, I don't think as well as I would like to be able to think. Emotionally, well, I'm not all that great sometimes in my emotions. All of what I am has been affected by sin. Would you agree that everything that you have and that you are has been affected by sin to some degree? Would you agree with me on that? Yeah, you would. Well, then you are totally depraved. Okay, now, it's not me calling you names. Man, you're totally depraved. You know, if someone said to me, I go, yeah, and what about it? You want to talk about it? And we'll go. The thing is, what does it mean and what's the effect of total depravity? Because the effect of total depravity is really important. And the scriptures teach the effect. And I, I want to tell you something. I have an incredibly high view of the Word of God. I believe that every jot and every tittle... I believe that every word, whether it's Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, is there for a reason. I have a very, very high view of the Word of God. Very high view. Jesus says in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. His voice is that very Word of God. I believe it, I trust in it, and I follow it. And the reason I do is because of what the Holy Spirit has done in me in His regeneration. It's not because of my total depravity. It's because of what God has done in me, I look at the word and say, yes, my Lord, yes, my Lord. Now, do I understand the word perfectly? No. I boast sometimes I do on the radio for fun. But I do not. The reason I hold to Reformed theology is because I believe in my limited understanding of things, I believe that it answers most of the questions, and that's what Scripture teaches. Now, I will also say this. I do believe that it's possible that I could be wrong. I believe that's the case. I don't believe I'm wrong, but I believe it's certainly possible. And that's an attitude a lot of us have to have, and then if you don't have that attitude, you need to study Romans 14, 1 through 12, and we can talk about that some other time. Now, total depravity. It is derived from Scripture. The effect of sin 
on the individual. And the scriptures tell us, for example, in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man cannot receive, he cannot receive the things of God for they're spiritually discerned. He cannot. So can he? No. What's a spiritual thing? Jesus Christ is God in flesh. He physically died on the cross, rose from the dead. He has two natures, hypostatic union. We can get into the communicatio idiomatum, the economic trinity, or we can do the ontological trinity. Can you understand these? No. Will he receive them? No. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 2.14 says he cannot. And if any of you want to disagree, and if any of you want to say, well, yeah, the unbeliever can receive these things. He's just got to try harder. Or he's just got to have what we call prevenient grace, which I might address as a problematic theological doctrine. All he's got to do is just have a little bit of that. Then you contradict the word of God, which says he cannot. Now, the Bible says that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. No man can trust it, Jeremiah 17, 9. Is it desperately wicked and deceitful? That's what it says. Jesus says in Mark 7, 22, 23, says that out of the heart comes murders and adulteries and rapes and thievings and pillages and all kinds of evil things. That's what's in me. I'm going to tell you something. Years ago, years ago, <coughs> I was on my knees in my room praying. This is the truth. I am praying and I am barfing out my sin. I am, Lord, I, I lust, Lord, I'm prideful, Lord, I, I'm arrogant, Lord, I think I know everything, Lord, I was mean to my wife, Lord, I wasn't nice to my children, Lord, you know, I'm just, it's getting it all out, right? 20 minutes of just heaving out my sin before my Lord as deeply as I possibly could. And then in the midst of it, I said, and Lord, thank you for make, not making me like the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> and I kept praying, and then I went, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've heard that before. And that's Luke 18, 9 through 14, the tax gatherer and the Pharisee. The Pharisee said, thank you for not making me like that tax gatherer. In the midst of my humility before God, what was there? Sin. Now, I'm firmly a believer in this statement. Nothing good dwells in me except Jesus. I don't know if I've ever done a good work. I'm not just saying that for here. I honestly don't know if I've ever done a good work because I know me. The fact that God uses me, that's miraculous. It's miraculous. My heart is wicked. My heart is deceitful. Even as a Christian, I think things I should not. I desire things I should not. I want things I should not because I struggle with my sin, just as Paul did in Romans 7, 18 through 25. He struggled. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't do, I should. He knew what the depravity was in his heart and his soul and his mind. And the scripture says that the natural man, the unbeliever, cannot receive the things of God. He cannot. Now, how many of you believe that the unbeliever seeks for God? Because Romans 3, 10, 11, and 12 says, none seek for God. Not even one. None does good. That's what the Bible says. I set people up like, oh yeah, he does. Well, wait a minute. What does it say right here? I show people, this is what the Word of God says, and I ask them, what are you doing? Are you submitting the Word of God to you, in your heart, your desires, or is that reversed? Now, I'm going to tell you something. For example, I do not like the idea of eternal damnation. I believe in it. I don't like it. I don't like it. Do I believe it? Yes. Why? I see the Scriptures teaching that. It's not an issue of what I want. It's an issue of what does the Word of God say. That's the issue for me. I hope that's the issue for you as well. Now, so the Bible says... <clears throat> We are, we are by nature, for example, by nature, children of, of wrath. Ephesians 2.3, we are by nature children of wrath. By nature, we are children of damnation. By nature. 
If you think you're good, you're wrong. There's none is good except God. If you think you're worth the salvation, you are wrong. God loves you not because of you, but because of what's in Him, not because of what's in you. He loves you because of His goodness, not because of what's in you. If you think that God's going to have favor on you because of your sincerity in your own heart, then what you're doing is you're saying, Lord, look at what good is in me, and that's why you should pick me. That's pride. That's arrogance. If you think that God is going to choose you and be favorable to you and look into the future under different circumstances to see what you're going to do, and that's why he chooses you, elects, predestined, whatever you want to call we'll get into all this stuff later. If you think that, then you're prideful and you're arrogant because you're saying there's some good quality in you that merits God's favor upon you. That's not what grace is. Go to uh, Romans 11:6. You have to understand that we are depraved. And because of that, the Bible says we are by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. We're dead or trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. We cannot receive spiritual things, 1 Corinthians 2.14. We are slaves of sin, the unbeliever. Slaves of sin, Romans 6, 14 through 20. The harsh, desperately wicked and deceitful. No man can trust it, Jeremiah 17.9. Out of the heart goes murders, adulteries, rapes, pillaging. I already said that. That's what Jesus himself said in Matthew, uh, Mark 7. 21 through 23, actually. So if that's the case, then can an unbeliever simply choose God? If you want to say yes, then I'll have to go over the verses again. He cannot, but he can. Okay, let's, let's do this again. He cannot receive them. He's a slave of sin. He's a hater of God, does not seek for God. He does no good. Is seeking God good? Yes. Does he do good? Yeah, that's a good thing. Wait a minute. Bible says he can't. Bible says he won't. Bible says he doesn't. Bible says he's full of evil. That's what the Bible says. When I found this out, I had to believe it. I didn't like it because, to be honest, I'm a good guy. I know how good I am in my own heart. I'm sincere. I got it together. You know, until the light of Scripture shined upon me, and I went, uh, well, maybe there's a few blotches. And then it switched to, maybe there's a few good things, and now there's, oh crud, I'm really bad. I need help. As the revelation of Scripture came upon me, as I saw it and believed it, that's what I believe. I hope you do too. This is simple doctrine. Now, some people will say that the solution of this problem is called prevenient grace. Prevenient grace, that grace which comes before that God will give to various people grace that enables them to believe. He enables them to believe in their free will. We're going to talk about free will in a while. Now, how many of you have seen uh, Princess Bride? Great movie, right? Miracle Max comes up to Wesley, and Wesley's down there. He's like, is he dead? And he says, no, he's just mostly dead, right? Mostly dead, right? Prevenient grace is like he's mostly dead in his sins. Not always, he's mostly dead. And if it's not prevenient grace comes to the person, then he can believe he'll be enabled. He'll be awakened of his own free will to be able to do that. And that's heresy. Now let me tell you why. I'm going to teach you some doctrine about the very nature of God. <clears throat> now God, we know, is from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. Psalm 90, verse 2, right? And he is immutable. He does not change. Malachi 3, 6. And Jesus is also immutable. Hebrews 13, 8. The immutability of God means he does not change. His essence, his nature, his character are eternal. He has this quality called aseity. How many of you have never heard that word before, aseity? All right. How many have heard it? 
Good. How many have listed me on the radio and that's why you know it? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. It slipped out. Slipped out. There's that depravity coming out. Aseity is the self-existence of God. Now, what I want to do is I want you to imagine something. Here's this right here. The universe is here. God is over here. This is where God is. So let's take that universe. It's gone. We only have God. Now, how are we going to imagine what that is? Just play along with me. God is by himself. God simply exists. He has a seity. He has self-sufficiency and eternality. He just is. Right? Now, he also has a quality called non-contingency. What that means is he's not dependent on anything else for his existence. You with me? Now, these glasses, which Bill, wherever he was, loaned to me, they're the contingency, there's Bill, they're resting here because this thing is holding them up. They're contingent on its staying here based on this. This is contingent on staying here based on the floor, et cetera, et cetera. But God has no contingency. In other words, God doesn't depend on anything. He doesn't need anything for his existence. He's independent and he has nothing to worry about, nothing. And this went on for forever, except we can't really say forever because that's related to time. There was no time, and we can get a really, I talk about infinite, um, uh, actual infinites, potential infinites, but then it would hurt you. And so then you wouldn't be any good for the rest of this. So I won't do that. So when God is existing by himself forever, he has non-contingency and independence, right? Now, the universe is going to be made. He's going to create some creatures. Now, I'm going to teach you some more theology to understand something here. What's called communicable and non-communicable attributes of God. The communicable and non-communicable attributes. So God makes us. In Genesis 1, 26 to 28, he makes us in his image, right? Not that we're in bodies of flesh and bones, because that's not the case. John 4, 24, God is spirit. In Luke 24, 39, spirit does not have flesh and bones. So, we know that when God creates us in his image, it's a different kind of an image, not a physical image. So he has these attributes, the kind that can be communicated to us, and there's the kind that cannot be communicated to us. The communicable attributes are attributes such as he thinks, we can think. He's aware of himself, we're aware of ourselves. He loves, we can love. He hates, that's Psalm 5, 5, Psalm 11, 5. He hates, but we can hate. But he does these things perfectly and righteously in every sense, every sense, all the time. But we do not. So we do them to a lesser degree, and they're touched by sin, because we are totally what? Depraved. Okay, see how I'm coaching them? See you guys? Okay, I'm working them. So we are totally depraved. So we have the communicable attributes of God that are communicated to us, but they're affected by sin. Now there's non-communicable attributes. For example, God's omniscience. He's omniscient. He knows all things. Can we know all things? No. I have to think I can't. I can't. He's omnipotent. Do we have all power? No. Cannot be communicated to us. Omnipresence. Everywhere all the time. Can't be communicated. Things like that. Now. Now. Now that I got you set up a little bit, I want to go back to the issue of his aseity and his non-contingency. The universe doesn't exist yet. And God's sitting there looking down the quarter of time, but there is no time. He's going to create the universe. He's going to create it the way he wants, right? Will he look in the future to see what will happen and base his choices on what he sees will happen? If he does, 
Is that not violating his non-contingency? Is it not violating his independence? I'm going somewhere with this, trust me. If God is independent, and de in other words, he depends on nothing for his thoughts, his awareness, his existence, nothing, then his decisions are also independent of all things. It cannot be that he's going to look down the four quarter of time. And I know about Romans 8, 29, and 30. We can talk about that. Those of you who are new, he's also predestined. Also is the key word. He does not do that. Unless you want to get into the Molinist error. He does not do that. Otherwise, his decisions would then be contingent. And that would violate the doctrine of, of his very nature and essence. Now, he has will. We'll talk about this. We're going to get into free will. Then I'm going to show you some verses. He has a will, doesn't he? God the being, he has a will. Now, I've got a trick question. I'm setting you up. I'm setting you up. You ready? I want to hear an answer. I'm setting you up. Okay, good. You ready? Yes. That's not very good. One more time. Yes. Very good. Here's a trick question. All right. In order to have free will, must you be able to decide between good and bad and be able to accomplish those between good and bad in order to have free will? Now, you're suspicious. How many would say yes? How many say no? How many are afraid to raise their hands? All right. Okay. If it's required that you have to be able to choose between good and bad and also be able to accomplish them, then you started with man and not with God because God cannot do that. God cannot choose to do evil, can he? But he's free, isn't he? Free will should not be defined by our ideas and our preferences. Free will should be defined by the very nature and stature of who God is. He is the true free being, and he is free insofar as his nature permits him to be free. He can only be holy. He cannot lie. First, First Peter 1.16, he's holy. We're to be holy because he's holy. He cannot lie. Titus 1.2. We can't do these things. I mean, we can lie, and we can't be holy, but he is holy, and he can't lie. He has the freedom, though, to act completely without coercion in the freedom of his own will. Correct? Free will is this, the ability to make choices that are uncoerced, a choice consistent with your nature. So let me refine that a little bit. Free will is the ability to make uncoerced choices that are consistent with your nature. That's what free will is, because then God fits into that, man fits into that consistent with your nature. God is holy, he cannot sin. The unbeliever is unholy, and he cannot do what is right. Both have freedom of will. The unbeliever will always choose to do that which is consistent with his total depravity. He will always choose to do that which is unholy. He cannot seek for God. He does not want God. He's full of evil. He's a slave of sin. He's unrighteous. Now, if we take one of the non-communicable attributes of God and we take a creature and we assign a non-communicable attribute, his omniscience, his omnipotence, and we assign it to a creature, what do we call that? Idolatry, right? Because we should not do that. If God has a will that's independent of all things and is self-sufficient, and self-generated, and self-whatever that is, and we take that issue of free will and assign it to a creature who's an unbeliever and a slave of sin and say he's completely free of his own will to simply make a choice to believe in God, what do we call that? Idolatry. We call it idolatry. When we assign to the creature a quality that belongs to God alone, 
that we have a problem. Because the sinner is not independent of his own freedom. He's not, in, excuse me, he's not independent of his own will, of his own nature. Within theology, there are two main views on free will. Libertarian free will, think of the Statue of Liberty, and compatibilist free will. Libertarian free will says the sinner is affected by sin and all that he is, but all he needs is the correct light, the correct information he'll be able to choose. Maybe a little prevenient grace in there, sprinkle some on there, makes it be mostly alive, mostly dead, whatever, and then he, I call it to zombify or zombification. He makes him mostly alive and he's able to make a choice. That's what it would have, okay? But that's not what the case is. Because the scripture says he cannot receive, cannot understand, cannot seek for God, and does not. If that's the case, then would it be true that we would expect to find verses in the Bible such as, to you it has been granted to believe, Philippians 1.29. To you been granted to believe, Philippians 1.29. You've been caused to be born again, 1 Peter 1.3. You're born again not of your own will, John 1.13. Or that you cannot come to me unless the Father draws you, John 6, 44. You cannot come to me unless the Father has granted it to you, John 6, 65. You've been granted repentance, 2 Timothy 2, 25. You have been brought into, by the exertion of God's will, into his kingdom and regenerated, uh, James 1, 18. If total depravity is true, in the sense that it, it, it incapacitates the person and he cannot then freely choose to follow God out of his sinful free will, then it must be the case that God grants to certain people belief. They said to Jesus in John 6, 28, 29, what must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe on whom he has sent. This is God's work that you believe. You know why I believe? Because it was God's work. I believe because when I was 17 years old, I got tricked into walking up front at a church in Southern California. And I was on my knees, oh, crud, what am I up here for? I should have raised my hand for that stupid question. And some guy with a big Bible and ribbons and gold pages and the whole bit and the whole thing like that. And he's like, well, son, I'm glad you want to receive Christ. Go away. I'm looking at the exit sign and I want to run. And I'm going to skip a lot of details, but let me just tell you that I decided to give God a chance. Oh, boy, lucky God. And so I'm sitting there, and the Holy Spirit came on me in power, and I wept. I wept so hard. It was out of my, my soul. It was out of my spine. And I have carried the body of my son to the graveside. And I wept that day. And that weeping pales in comparison to the weeping of the presence of God himself and being in his holiness. And then Jesus was there. And Jesus, I, I just I was aware of him. And Jesus forgave me. Did I seek him? No. I was in the occult and I was a pornographer. And, a, and I was bad. Was it God seeking me? was I seeking God? He came for me because I was a slave of sin, Romans 6, 14 through 20. A hater of God who does no good, John 3, I mean Romans 3, 10, 11, and 12. I had been appointed to eternal life, and that's why I believed Acts 13, 48. I had been granted the act of believing, Philippians 1, 29. God had worked belief in me, John 6, 28, 29. Why? Because of God's mercy. If you think... If you think you and your wisdom were good enough to pick God, then you're arrogant. And yeah, I'll back it up. And I'll, I won't back down from that. I will say it. If you think in your sinfulness and your wisdom, all you knew was that little light and it was you and you were enabled and that was it, then you are arrogant fools. 
you have to understand that it's not your wisdom and not your ability. Because if you say it's of your wisdom and of your ability, then you're taking credit for what doesn't even belong to you. Did you believe? Yes, you did. Because he regenerated you first. We'll get into that. Were you wise enough to believe in your sinfulness when the Bible says the heart's desperately wicked, deceitful, no man can trust it, a slave of sin, a hater of God, doesn't seek for God, full of evil, can't be trusted, and cannot receive spiritual things? Yeah, that's me. I could do it all. No. Because of the depravity of our man, because of the depravity of our soul, the depravity of our minds, the depravity of what we are, I look, and I don't mean this to be insulting, but I, look, I, I say this on the radio sometimes. I say, look, in my view, what I understand of Scripture, those who teach that it's quite capable for themselves to be able to believe in God of their own free will, in their sinfulness, they just need a little bit of help. We'll get into Bob and Frank next. They need a little bit of help. What I picture them as doing, as being on their knees before the very throne of God. Ten minutes? Before the, thr the very throne of God. And they get their finger on that throne. They got, they're touching it. Because in their sovereignty, their wisdom, their ability, they chose. Me? No. I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't wise enough. He gets all the glory. He gets all the glory. Why did he choose me? I have no idea. I have no idea why he would choose me whatsoever. But he did because of his goodness. Now, some people think, well, wait a minute. God makes people equal. He just kind of makes them what they are. They have free will. Okay, Bob and Frank, identical twins, born cesarean. They both came out at the same time. Same mom, same dad, same food, same schools, same sports events, same. 21 years old, they both go to the same church. Bob believes the gospel, Frank does not. Why? Now, some people say, prevenient grace, prevenient grace in there. It just enabled them, okay? Then why does God's prevenient grace enable Bob but not Frank? Because of their free will. Wait a minute. Are you saying then that their free will means that it's independent of their sin sufficiently in order to make a choice? What do we call that? Idolatry. This is what happens when you start with man. You have to reduce God. And you exalt yourself. That's what happens when you define free will, choice, in the terms of your experience, of your desires and your wants. This is a serious thing. It's a serious thing. Now, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, Acts 13, 48. The word appoint is tasso in the Greek. It was used in military terms to appoint men in certain places, to put them there. <coughs> Excuse me. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who appointed them? God. They believed. Why? To you it has been granted not only to suffer for Christ's sake, but also to believe. Philippians 1.29. What must we do to work the works of God? This is the work of God that you believe on whom he has sent. Can God change the heart? He moves the heart of the king where he wishes it to go. Proverbs 24.1. Is he the sovereign? Or are you? Who's a sovereign king? God. Who's a sovereign lord? God. Are you in your own ability going to say, no, it's up to me. And I don't like this idea of God being the one who's in sovereign control, who decides who goes to heaven and goes to hell. 
Well, that's Romans 9, 9 through 23. We can go through that. Romans, or Proverbs 16, 4. He makes all things, even the wicked for the day of evil. We can go through all kinds of things. And I can go through the sovereignty of God and his right of divine election. He chose us for salvation. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says so. He chose us for salvation. That's what the Bible says, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. He chose us for salvation. You go to Ephesians chapter 4, I mean, excuse me, Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 5. Though as he called, he predestined. He chose us from the foundation of the world. He chose because we're all sinners. We're all by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. We all belong damned, but God in his great mercy, and I don't understand how it works. I do not understand how he chooses. I do not understand how it all works. I don't understand how the more I preach, the more people seem to be elected. I don't understand how all that works. We're getting an unconditional election another time. But I know this, the more I preach, the more people get saved because of the power of God's word according to his sovereign will. His sovereign grace, Romans 1.16, who works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11 says. What I believe is the Word of God. I'm not saying others don't who disagree with me. I'm not saying that. Because we have different people who don't agree, and that's okay. But I want you to understand, we Calvinists do not deny free will. We believe in free will. We believe that free will is consistent with your sinful nature. You're going to make sinful choices. And the only ones who can't do that, or are free to make unsinful choices, are those who are regenerated. That God gives that light to and that change to, 2 Corinthians 5.17, 5.21, talks about our regeneration at the sacrifice of Christ that enables us to believe. Now I'm going to tell you something before we go, go in here. We teach what's called regeneration preceding faith. But don't think of it as temporal. Think of it as logical. Let me explain. You have a light bulb and you flip the switch, electricity is in that light bulb, and because electricity is in the light bulb, light occurs, right? But it's not the case that because light is there, that's why electricity is there. It's not the case. Light is there because electricity is there. It's not the case that electricity is there because the light is there. Regeneration is like the electricity, light is the belief. Because we're being regenerated, so to speak, electrified with the very presence of God by that change and that work in us, he then causes us to be born again, 1 Peter 1.3. We're born again not of our own will, the regeneration. Okay, that's John 1.13. So because of his change in us, we believe. Because if we're totally depraved and slaves of sin who cannot receive spiritual things and are haters of God and can do no good, then we can't just simply believe. Even with prevenient grace, it doesn't make any sense. Why does one with prevenient grace believe and another one does not? Because uh, it's a free will? What do we call that? Idolatry. That's the problem. The Reformed perspective answers the question because God in his sovereignty calls us. God in his sovereignty appoints us. Those who before knew, he also predestined. He didn't look in the future to see what was going to happen. Otherwise, that meant he learned. And that violates 1 John 3.20. He knows all things. The ones who are foreknown are also the ones predestined. He only knows believers. He doesn't know everybody. You can go to Matthew 7, 22 to 23 for that. He calls us. He's the one who grants us the life. He does this out of the sovereignty and kindness of his will. Why? Because of his goodness, not yours. Because of his kindness, not yours. Because of his ability, 
not yours. Because of his love, not yours. Because of his wisdom, not yours. Don't take the credit for what God does. What must we do to work the works of God? This is the work of God, Jesus says, that you believe. It's God's work. The reason you believe is God did it in you. The reason you believe is God granted it to you. The reason you came to Christ is because God granted that you come to him, John 6, 65. That's why. One of the reasons I like Reformed theology, in my opinion, it gives the greatest glory to God and puts us where we belong, on the receiving end of his grace and his love. The receiving end of his grace and his love. Not in any way earned by our ability, not in any way understood by our wisdom but received, and he gets all the glory. That's what I like about it. And besides that, I believe it's biblical. All right? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Matt. Matt, you still got four minutes. Is there anything you want to say? <laughs> so I've got to ask you, Matt. I know that you have, a, you have a radio show, but it looks more like maybe you have a TV show. I want to do TV. <laughs> So I did take the time to read Matt's uh, testimony before I came on his website. Uh, it's really a powerful story. I suggest you read it if you have time. Matt, uh, do you want to put a plug in for your website? Sure. Um, Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, the only true website on the net. <laughs> Carm.org, C-A-R-M.org. And I work on it probably 60 hours a week. And um, you know, just, you know what, seriously, whether you agree with me or not about this stuff, Please pray for me. Pray for my wife who works with me. Pray. We are under heavy attack all the time. We have attacks on our servers. We have attacked personally. We've got a, a guy in Bogota, Colombia, does Spanish. We're trying to get a guy in Germany now. We've got somebody doing Portuguese. We've got somebody in Turkey. We're really trying to reach out. We've got stuff going. We really need prayer. Please just remember some prayer. And I, I'm, I'm sincerely asking, please pray for us. We really do need that a lot going on. I could tell you for a half hour stuff that's going on and you all go, whoa. So just pretend I did that and just go, whoa, and you'll understand. Whoa. A lot of stuff and by God's grace, uh, he'll get the glory and all that. But just please pray for us. Amen. Do we really need to tell Christians to pray? Come on. Okay, we're going to go to a short break. Five minutes for the video audience. Uh, just stay with us. We've got a video clip for you. We'll play for our, uh, our audience here. Uh, restroom. There's some food in the back. We'll be right back. Stay tuned.
record it in my photo booth so I don't forget it. For
Welcome back. For those of you that are just tuning in, we have Matt Slick with CARM tonight. Uh, he just finished uh, giving a presentation on uh, Calvinism. He did a great job. Uh, uh, Sean McCraney's going to follow up now and give us a little insight from a different perspective. So, Sean, it's all yours, my brother. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I accepted Matt's offer to come on the show uh, to talk about Calvinism uh, for one reason. It's not to debate. Uh, it's not to divide. Uh, I obviously have voiced my disdain for Calvinism. Uh, not all five points, just certain elements of it. I believe God is sovereign. I believe that God is doing the work. I believe that we need him to step in. It's not of our works, or we would boast, all of those things. But the reason I want to do this is I want to show our viewers, and especially people coming out of Mormonism, who uh, still make up a large part, and people who are truth seekers, I want to present a side that shows you can be a viable Christian believer and not be a Calvinist. And I want to use the Bible to uh, help prove my point. Uh, I'm not going to change Matt's mind or any other five-pointer, but I want them to know that I love and accept them. Arminiists, reconciliationists, anybody, anybody, Mormon, Catholic, anybody who says they agree to the gospel of Jesus Christ as it's defined by the Bible. So it isn't to really, I will re try to refute Calvinism. I can't do the job that Matt does in promoting it, but I um, will do my best. I want to thank um, Matt and his wife and Nathan and Lindsay for coming all this way from Idaho. Uh, Derek and Danita for all that they do. Uh, Blake, Merle, Kathy, Kathy Maggie, Seth, Linda Cassidy, Wendy Jensen, uh, and all who are watching, really grateful. Coming out of one of the greatest um, systematic false theologies of Mormonism, Matt LDS are masters of, of argument using selective passages to build their case. And so they build a very sound offense and they build a very sound defense and they use it by pulling from here and here and here and here and here and here and here. And, here. and they get you to believe and they get you to nod and they get you to say yes. And they get you to say, do you agree with that? Yes, I do. And you shake your head enough and pretty soon you want to be baptized. Yes, I do. And you're right in the hooks of a system. All systems do the same thing. It's what make systems. God did not give us a system. The, the only system we have is love. That's it. It is love, made possible through Christ Jesus, but it's not a system. Systems are sold to us. They are presented pulling out the other side of the information. If I'm going to sell you uh, a VW, I'm not going to tell you the downside of the VW. I'm not going to tell you the good things of a Corvette. I'm going to only promote the things about the VW to make you shake your head and say, I want it. I don't like sales. I like the whole picture. I want to know what the whole picture is when I look at something. So what is dismissed and overlooked and refused in an address is important. So I want to ask you to try and hear the other side of what Matt had to say tonight. The first great commandment is love God. The second is like unto it, love one another. Jesus said something in Matthew 7, 8. 
For everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks it shall be opened. Or what man of you, whom asks his uh, son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? Listen to this. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good gifts to them that ask him? We learn a number of, number of things from this, but the important thing to me is that Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Much more. Meaning, we think we're loving. God is a trillion times more loving. In John 3.16, we read that God so loved the world, a sinful world. He loved a sinful world. That he sent his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we recognize that this God who knows how to give better gifts, who loves better than we do, who loved a sinful world, sent his only begotten son. In 1 John 4, 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knows God. And then go down 10 verses and it says, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. God is love. And he that dwells in love dwells in God and God in him. Finally, go to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, which is the grand uh, uh, chapter on love. And it describes the kind of love that God is. His love is kind. It doesn't envy. It's not puffed up. It doesn't behave unseemingly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not easily provoked. It doesn't think evil. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And it never, ever, 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 ever fails. His love does not fail us. No matter how long it takes. His love will not fail us. In the face of these biblical absolutes, I look at Calvinism and I find myself utterly befuddled. It's really the only question I have. How could God be a better gift giver than men? How could God so love the world that he gave us his only son? How could God, who is described as love, who sends a spirit that bears the fruit of love, that's what it says. And who possesses a love that never fails, stick with me, be the same God who knew there was a sin plague that would blind the whole world, who alone holds the antidote to that sin plague, and then only selectively imposes the antidote on select people, leaving the rest to burn forever in eternity in insufferable pain. How is that possible? How? He knew before the garden, before creation, that sin was going to come into the world, and he had the antidote. The Calvinist says he did it, he created anyway, and he wouldn't give the antidote to everybody who needed it. That's my great question with Calvinism.
I wanted to give the lion's share to our time tonight on the first point of the total inability, total depravity, because if this can be proven faulty, then all the other points fail as they represent a logical extension of the first. I accept election and sovereignty, his grace, etc. The system of Calvinism in and of itself is intellectually stimulating. And most people who follow five-point Calvinism to the nines are very intellectual people. And so I grant that God gives grace and he lets the intellectuals wander off in these places. We deal with drug addicts and heroin addicts. And we deal with people who don't have educations. And we deal with people coming out of Mormonism. Could they ever follow just the first 40 minutes of this presentation? Is it It's so, so high up there. Can't we bring it down? Can't we look at what the essential is and forget this divisive, and it is a divisive doctrine within the body of Christ? Every Calvinist knows that if total depravity can be disproven, the rest of the things fall. And so they spend a lot of time to prove how depraved we are. The idea of total depravity is said to be the result of man's spiritual ruin that came from the acts of Adam in the Garden of Eden. The single act has left man incapable, incapable Calvinism, of doing anything relative to God that is good. Therefore, man is spiritually disabled and he cannot will himself to obey any spiritual command, including the invitation to come to Christ. Preach it all you want. Share it all you want. It's irrelevant. John Calvin sums up this in this language. This is the founder and it goes contrary to what my brother says. Calvin said, let it stand therefore as an indubitable truth which no engines can shake that the mind of man is so entirely alienated from the righteousness of God that he cannot conceive, desire, or design anything but what is wicked, distorted, foul, impure, and iniquitous that the heart is so thoroughly envenomed by sin that it can breathe out nothing but corruption and rottenness, that if some men actually show some goodness, their mind is ever interwoven with hypocrisy and deceit and their soul inwardly bound with fetters of wickedness, end quote. The source of this innate wickedness, Calvin tells us, he says, quote, the corruption by which we are held bound as in with chains originated in the first man's revolt against his maker. Now, we refer to Adam's sin as the fall. That's not a biblical title. It's not in the Bible. We talk about it. It's almost as if it is. There's no fall mentioned. Not the fall in the terms of the word. We all know that it is through their sin that sin was introduced to the world. I get that. I understand how things became corrupt because of Adam's choice and that death was brought into the world. The Calvinist claims that due to Adam's sin, human beings find themselves absolutely unable to respond to God, unable to take any legitimate action in pursuit or in response to him at all, unless God steps in first and says, okay, you can. And he only does that on a limited basis. The ones he does not point to they go to hell and burn forever and ever and ever. Matt talked about God not needing us. In Calvinism, actually, God does need us. 
He needs some to burn and he needs some to glory to prove him righteous and merciful and also his judgment correct. That's why they say he did not pick everybody. He did allow many to go and burn forever in hell because it proves him to be just because of the ones he saved. That means that the master has become the slave. Calvinist Augustus Strong said this, man present inability is natural in the sense of being inborn. It's not acquired by our personal act, it's congenital. You know what that says? To the Calvinists, our total inability towards spiritual good is similar to our eye color, similar to our race. It is, we have no control over our eye color at birth. We have no control of being totally, absolutely depraved and un incapable of responding. In other words, to the Calvinist, to choose God is a myth. No one can say, I seek you. All of this is the result of another non-biblical phrase, original sin. It's been given to us, not in the Bible. If the doctrine of original sin was true, I think we would expect some kind of mention of it in the Genesis account. It's not there. But we never read about God imposing a curse of total inability on man's nature, do we? We don't read that when they fell, God say, and by the way, from now on out, your posterity is not going to have any ability to choose me. That would be the worst curse that God could put on somebody. But what does God curse us with? Curse of death is mentioned. Okay, you're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to be out of the garden. You're going to be out of the tree of life. You're going to be out of my room. That's spiritual death. You're going to die physically. Death is brought in. God says that we will return to the dust. He's not referring to total inability of spirit there. God says that thorns and thistles are going to make our work tough. God says that he told the woman she's going to endure great pain when she's giving birth. These are all laid out by God as the, what happens as a result of Adam stepping away from obedience. But nothing about total inability. Nothing at all. How come we don't hear this side of the story? These curses that I just mentioned compared to total inability are lightweight. Total inability would be an unbelievable burden to throw upon Adam and Eve. And listen to this. His first children, Cain and Abel, somehow Abel had the ability to choose a good offering. And Cain didn't. Did God, pre-Christ, step in and, and regenerate his heart so Abel could do it and then curse Cain because he chose wrongly? Or was some choice going on there between Cain and Abel? The Calvinist says, no, it's impossible. But God said, Abel, I accept your offering. It must have been good in some sense. How? A critic of original sin and total inability, George Burnap said, if this doctrine of total inability and original sin is true, God did not tell man the true penalty. He did not tell the truth, neither the whole truth, not a hundred part of the truth. To have told the whole truth according to this hypothesis, he should have said, because you have done this, Adam, cursed be the moral nature which I have given you. Henceforth, such is the change I make in your natures, that you shall be and your offspring infinitely odious and hateful in my sight. Do we find God responding to people that way after the fall? Completely odious and hateful? No, we do not. Now, 
It is true that death passed upon all men because of Adam. His expulsion from the garden with its tree of life removed from the presence of immortality and made death certain. This was passed on to all of us and as with the presence of sin, but not total inability. Not total inability. In fact, I won't go, even go into the, the two Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 because I have too much here. Nowhere are we told in Scripture that an invincible curse tendency to resist God or not know God at all was imparted to the race of humanity through the offense of one. All we're said is that through one man came sin. Of course it did. A sin nature. But does it mean we can't choose at all? If there was ever a place in Scripture that discussed this doctrine, it would be in the places where Adam and his descendants are discussed in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, but there's not a trace of the teaching there. In fact, this Calvinist teaching raises an even more basic question, which I want to ask, where do we read in Scripture that man had a holy, pure nature that became corrupted and transmitted to his posterity in the first place? See, you have to understand, Calvinists and most other Christians, for that matter, automatically assume that God made Adam morally perfect. That is a complete assumption, and it's an idiotic one when you think about it. Let me tell you why. Where does the Bible convey this information about a perfect nature in Adam and Eve? Have you ever wondered what it was in morally perfect Adam that allowed him to sin in the first place? If he was morally perfect, how could he sin? He was not created morally perfect. He was created with an ability to sin. Otherwise, if he was morally perfect, he never would have fallen. You see? If they were created morally perfect, they never would have sinned because they wouldn't have had the ability they were morally perfect. Of course, it's reasonable to affirm that Adam and Eve were created with an original innocence. I get that. The original innocence. But this is not close to the same thing as perfection of a moral nature. Our first parents did lose innocence when they sinned. Their eyes were open to good and evil, which prompted them to hide from their creator. But in an entirely different manner altogether to say that they fell from a morally perfect state, wrong, to a state of total spiritual depravity, wrong. I mean, the whole narrative of the Old Testament proves there was not total spiritual depravity. It proves it. Read it. Nor does the fact that God, hold, God, God called his creation good. We can, he said it's good. It doesn't mean it was morally perfect. It means it was right. It was set. It was okay. It was fine. Scripture calls Barnabas a good man. Does that mean that he was morally perfect? No. Obviously, there is a universal sinfulness in us. Matt cited scriptures that refer only to that. Those passages do not ever say we are totally depraved. They just say we are, we love sin. But does that mean we don't also seek and that we can also want because we love the light more than the dark? Does that mean we're good? No. Are we sinful? Yes. But do, do we have to um, wallow in total inability in order to understand who God is in our life. 
if the tendency was in the first man to stray like it had to be, it had to be in him, then we know it's in the rest of us too. Even from the womb, as the Hebrew poets so suggest. By the way, when we quote scripture that talks about there is none righteous, no, not one, we have to look that he was talking about Gentiles and Jews and saying the Gentiles are not the only dirty ones. That's context. You can't just take a single passage and use it as a proof text for the whole biblical narrative. That is what all systems do. Read the whole thing and then make your decisions. Man is sinful, no doubt about it. We're very familiar with the verses that prove it. Psalms 58, 3. The wicked go astray from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born speaking lies. Sin nature, sure. Yeah, we wake up, we're, we're born, we're selfish. We're selfish. We cry, we want things, we won't share. Sin nature, sure. But how do those kids ever do anything that cries out to God? They don't. I think they do. I think they do. Isaiah 48.8, I knew that they would deal very treacherously and was called a transgressor from the womb. When these passages are packaged and presented to us in presuppositional Calvinistic rhetoric, when you take the package and you just listen to those, it's really easy to interpret us as being totally depraved. I almost shouted hallelujah while, my, while Matt was preaching. I mean, he is a great orator. He knows scripture far better than I ever will. But I'm not sure he brings it all to the table. Again, man is a sinner. But the question is, was Adam any different? And when he was created, he couldn't have been. He had to have had it in him to disobey. The Calvinist entire system of soteriology is founded on the grand assumption that Adam was created morally impeccable. He lost perfection through sin and assumed a nature totally corrupted and alienated from God, which became a, natu which became a nature imparted to all of us as a result. This, but again, while the scripture supports for these contentions is lacking, we hear it and we just assume it's true. I've been taught, I've taught it myself and I've been in error. So where did this idea of Adam's fall from perfection come from? Calvin went back to Augustine. Augustine was fighting Pelagianism. Pelagius said, listen, original sin of Adam didn't taint all of human nature and humans can choose good without God's intervention. And Calvin read what Augustine said and he took it hook, line, and sinker and it's still alive and well today. But shouldn't a doctrine that plays such an important role in systematic theology have unequivocal passages? We note that Calvinists are not the only smart people on the earth. There are others who read the same passages and interpret them differently. For this reason, and almost this reason alone, I'm standing here to say you don't have to buy this package. You can look at it a different way. You can embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you believe in the Arminius view, which I don't agree with, or if you believe the Calvinist view, or if you agree with the reconciliationist view, I don't care. And I don't think we should care because we are going to debate on these things. The problem is I rarely hear a Calvinist say that's acceptable to me. They say, this is the way. This is how it is interpreted. I am right. You are wrong. They have decided 
that they understand it better through their knowledge what scripture is saying. I, do, I disagree. And so do many other people. In other words, how and why would we ever believe a Calvinist unless the Bible proves that God made man morally perfect? The Bible proves that Adam's sin immediately corrupted him and rendered him and Cain and Abel and all others utterly unable to respond to God at all and that God transmitted this ability, inability to all of us. If the Bible doesn't prove it verse by verse, why accept it? Moving along, the false doctrine of total inability passed on to us by Adam also makes it impossible for us to apply the command Jesus Christ gave, doesn't it? As men and women more scholarly and astute than I have pointed out, the most obvious fault with the doctrine of total inability is that it makes the gospel an unreasonable demand. Stay with me. How can God, who is perfectly just, command all men to repent everywhere? Acts 17.30. How can he command that, knowing full well, as the Calvinists would suggest, that the command is impossible for all men everywhere to obey? Does that make sense to you? We are supposed to worship him with our minds. Does it make sense to you that they are commanded to go and go out and hear and repent, but God commands it, but he doesn't give them the ability to? It's a very difficult problem for Calvinism. So as to maintain consistency, they often assert that just because a command is given by God doesn't necessarily imply an ability to keep it. Here's the deal. Think. If God gives a command and threatens to punish people who do not comply, it does imply an ability to obey it, doesn't it? Or is God a game player? Is he just toying with us? This puts Calvinists in another major difficulty. Man is so corrupt, he will not and cannot obey the slightest spiritual command on his own, nor can he appreciate or even understand it, yet God orders him to believe and he punishes him eternally for not doing it. That is the biggest quagmire I have ever heard in my life. I mean, we are talking nonsense. There is no sense to that. And I want, I mean, we have minds. We're created in his image. We think through these things. Really? Man is so corrupt, he cannot look to God at all, nor can he appreciate anything about God. God orders him to believe and then puts him in hell forever because he doesn't. Oh my gosh, it is, I'm sorry. I'm a passionate man like Matt. In other words, as opposed to a just judge of the universe, could God justly condemn the sinner for not doing what he from the tomb could, from the womb could not do? How is there from the womb an imprecation of guilt upon everybody and, and God doesn't give them the antidote? In order for a person to embrace these principles, they have to skip chunks of principles and passages in the Bible. Calvinism selectively builds their superstructure of thought it's highfalutin, it's very erudite, it's extremely intellectual, it makes you feel strong in the fact that you understand God finally, you've put him in the box. A long box with ends on it covered six feet deep. Have you ever noticed that the Old Testament demands from God to the people were never presented as impossibilities? Never. Moses said in Deuteronomy, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. 
For I command you to love the Lord your God and walk in the ways and commands and decrees and laws. We note that Moses didn't add, but you are incapable of doing it. I'm just saying this for the hell of it. Are you enjoying this? You're never going to do it. But this is what I command. The commands were offered genuinely and they were presented to them to consider. If any of them could be kept, if any of the commands could be kept, then the idea of total inability is lost. Did any of the children of Israel wandering through, did they have the ability ever to obey any of the commands? They certainly did. Was God the one who enabled them? And then if he did, then he must have saved them at that point too. Is that how we're going to explain that? I used to see the words of Joshua on the side of Barnes in Pennsylvania on my Mormon mission. The words of Joshua say, choose for yourselves. Huh? This day whom you will serve. What? For yourself? Where the God your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. There is nothing in Joshua's words that suggests the Israelites were unable to follow the Lord's commands unless they experienced an inward miracle that changed them utterly. They were still called upon to make a choice of the heart and turn from their evil ways. They had to repent to follow Joshua's command, but they had to choose to turn. Joshua said, throw away your foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts. We read passages that say the heart is despicable, it's evil, it can't do anything. But we also read other passages that talk about the heart being completely capable. I mean, Scripture's paradoxical. Nowhere are we given the impression that these people were in a state of total inability from birth, innately incapable from yielding their hearts as Joshua commanded them. I mean, how do Calvinists explain Job? The very first verse or second verse in Job says he was a perfect man. How? Job? How did you do that? What was it? How did Abel and Cain? The New Testament uses the same language. On the day of Pentecost, listen, Peter preached to thousands who had gathered there. Why did he do it? Why didn't he just stand there and wait for the Holy Spirit to fall and let it fall on the ones that God had appointed? Instead, he preached. Luke writes, with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves. Save yourselves, Peter said, from this corrupt generation. Was Peter pleading with them to do something that they were incapable of doing? Imagine Peter preaching to a room full of ardent five-point Calvinists today, saying, save yourself. What would they say to that? <gasps> you deny honoring God. Why would you say that if it's not possible? Why the gospel command to come and believe? To let all your sin go, to look to the author and finisher of faith. Calvinists often suggest that to preach to a natural man is like preaching to a dead person. That they cannot respond on their own. We heard that kind of played with tonight by Matt. Jesus, however, felt it necessary to obscure his message in parables because he said, listen, they would have turned and, and, and repented if they heard. So he obscured his message in parables so that they wouldn't hear and turn. It, it, have you ever thought it funny, if you're a Calvinist, how Jesus marveled at the unbelief of the people? How he marveled at their... If, if total depravity was the case, he'd just be, no-brainer, we, we know why they're that way, don't we? No. He marveled at their unbelief. 
couldn't believe how hard their hearts were. Romans 1, Paul writes of men who are without excuse because of the manifestation of God's presence in creation. Without excuse. He says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. As a result of their turning from God. Nothing about total inability here. The Calvinist is hard-pressed to show how this condition of darkness given to those who harden their hearts is possible if they are totally incapable to know God in the first place. Again, I'm not denying that all people are born with extremely sinful tendencies. Matt was probably right when he said, I'm totally depraved. In my flesh, I am. Um, it's obvious. But it is one thing to say all men have such tendencies from birth and another to say they are absolutely unable to soften their heart, turn to God, repent, choose the, this day whom you will serve. Let me briefly touch. Oh, I'm going to stop here. I'm not going to cover that. Almost out of time. In John 6.44, the Calvinists use this often. It says, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I agree completely that God is calling to us through the cosmos. I agree completely that God is calling to us through his word. I agree that God is calling to us through conscience. I believe that God is calling to us through um, other Christians, through the message of Jesus Christ. Primarily, the apostles in the New Testament preached preached, and it was the hearing of the word that got them to turn. It wasn't something that came down out of nowhere. That is why we preach, because he's calling to all. He wants all. We're gonna, the, this is another reason we're going to cover these other points tomorrow, is because the idea of him not wanting all and not saving all, my question has always been, if God who is sovereign and knows all things and he has all power and is love, why, if he has the choice in the druthers, does he not elect everybody? Why does he not do that? Oh, the Calvinist says it's because he's glorified when many are burning in hell and some are saved. <laughs> that does not sound like God needs to be glorified in that way, I've always wondered why not all. Now, election. Does he elect some to become sons and daughters, be believers in this life? Absolutely. We're denying scripture if we say he's not, didn't. He does. By his foreknowledge, he has elected all things, the nation of Israel to bring forth the oracles of God, the Messiah. He's bringing forth a first fruits here through believers. But there is always in the nation of Israel's uh, history and always within scripture, there's a first fruits of something and there's fruits to follow. I would suggest to you in my closing remark here that God will bring all fruits to him. Some through faith in his son here. Some through faith in his son there. Some through faith in his son 
there. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And no man can confess Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. I am so concerned with the spread of Calvinism simply because it's not going to hold water. Uh, I, 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 I think people should have the right to pursue whatever they want, but it's not going to hold water with a very astute, questioning generation coming up. It's not that I refute it because of that, but I think it is doing harm. God is love. He sent his only begotten son. He wants all to be saved. He gets his will. We will not have victory over him in our will. Satan will not beat him at any game. Christ was victorious. Yes, there is a hell. Yes, a lake of fire. But he will redeem all. Now, I know there are Christians, they just die at that. Die if you want. Uh, but that is my position, and I think it answers five-point Calvinism in a tremendous way, and it does it through the Bible. We don't have time to go through it. But it does it through a, a pretty sound examination of Scripture that doesn't pick and choose. Consider it. Thank you all very much. Marcus. Oh. Thank you, Sean. Chuck, we on? We on? We good? Chuck? Thank you, Sean. Great presentation. Uh, like Sean had mentioned, when I was watching Matt, I was saying this guy's putting up a... He's got a good presentation. I like what he's saying. And so when I was watching Sean, I was sitting there, well, well, now I like what Sean's saying as well. So it reminded me of a verse in Proverbs 18, 17. The one who states his case first seems right <laughs> until the other comes and examines him. <laughs> so. It also says, answer a fool according to his folly. <laughs> so that was... Be nice. <clears throat> Go ahead. Well, and you'll get your chance. <laughs> now, I believe I believe we're going to take callers. Do we have callers ready? Uh, we have callers, and we also have an online question. Which one do you want to do? Let's do a caller. Okay, we're going to caller. Here we go. You're on the air. Hello. Tell me how to turn this. Shut up, the. Okay, there we now, go. turn your volume down. I just, uh, I just got rid of it. Okay. What, what was your name? Uh, my name is Dave. Dave, do you have a question for one of these two gentlemen? Uh, yes, I do for uh, Matt. Go ahead, Dave. Matt, um, when Jesus uh, walked the earth with us here, did uh, I'm assuming that he had cognizance of his pre-incarnate self. Would that be true? I think it's a safe assumption. Okay. Of... So when he was talking, uh, when he was mourning over Jerusalem, you know, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and I would have gathered you as a hen, you know, the chicks under my wing, but you would not. That's his pre-incarnate recollection, as I would... I wouldn't call it a, a recollection. Remark. <clears throat> I wouldn't call that a recollection. But I mean, why is, would he mourn over people who aren't predestined to be saved? Well, he's in, the, in that statement right there, though. He's, he is 
he is calling out to Jerusalem and he's recalling. He says, how often I would have, but you would not. Great question. I don't understand the question, though. So the, 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 the question is that, well, is that he is recalling something. He's lamenting. He is lamenting over the fact that Jerusalem had a choice. He would have. He's saying himself, I, I, I am the pre-incarnate God. I would have in the past gathered you together, but you would not. Implies that that Jerusalem, the, the leadership, the people of Jerusalem, did have a choice. Well, it may interrupt. Then it's, it's, a long, it's a long question, but that to, means... To run to him, but they would not. Because he says, I, the pre-incarnate God, would have gathered you, but you wouldn't, so therefore I didn't. Um, that's perfectly consistent with total depravity. They would not have. That's exactly correct. Okay. <clears throat> so, but, the, but there is they, they had an opportunity to cho choose. Well, we don't deny that people have the opportunity to choose. They're going to choose okay, in a manner consistent. And they did not. It's not. By that statement alone, I'm looking at it in, in that scripture and saying, but I don't see it, anything about um, God's predetermination. I see that he laments. You're mixing he's categories. lamenting because they did not choose. You can't... Okay, can, can you stop was, for a second? Let me why answer would he, Why okay. would hey, he Dave, lament? Hey, Dave, Dave. <clears throat> okay. let's give Matt a chance to answer. We've got to move on. Thanks so much for yeah. the question. Why would he lament? He was a man. He's made under the law, Galatians 4.4, 4, for a little while the Lord and the angels, Hebrews 2.9. He was a man. He had two natures. It's called the hypostatic union. Go to Colossians 2.9, for in him dwells all, all the fullness of deity and bodily form. As a human, he grew in wisdom, Luke 2.52. Of course he's going to lament. He loves Jerusalem. He, he was hurting because he was a human being. He still is. He's hurting. Of course he's going to lament. But to say, to, to, so to speak, set that divine aspect of God's sovereignty apart from and set it against his humanity is really a fallacy. We have, I could go into theology, the hypostatic union, the communicatio idiomatum, and it kind of deals with this issue. But look, they wouldn't have chosen because total depravity is true. That's why. But you wouldn't do it. Of course they're not going to do it unless God grants their the ability. Can I do a follow-up? Absolutely. Now, so what he's just saying, and I think you understood that, is God... Jesus would certainly have known that had God wanted to, he would have regenerated them. But Jesus' response was, oh, I called you, I asked you, I saw you like, like a chicken with, uh, with her chicks, but you would not, and he wept. Yeah. Why wouldn't he just be, this is how it's going, guys. Well, haven't think, been chosen. Don't think that God is some um, Calvinistic, determined, uh, only logical non-emotional, just kind of a puppet master. Because that's not what it is. God so loved the world he gave. The nature of love is to give. God laments. God grieves. God hurts over their sin. We could answer, ask the question a different way. God is great, and Proverbs 21.4 says he moves the heart of the king where he wishes it to go. Well, why doesn't God just appear to people? If he wants everyone to be saved. And just, okay. call them, just appear. He can certainly do that. And he did that to me, not in a literal appearance, but he was there. He can do it, but he doesn't. Why? His sovereignty is in effect is, is there as well. As far as Chorazin goes, yeah, he lamented. Because as a man under the law, who, and they are under the law, you know, love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. You know, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 5, 
do that. They weren't doing it. Of course he's going to lament over that. Did they do it at all? Did, um, did they? Yeah. Well, all. I don't know. I don't know if they did. Well, if they did, they did some, wouldn't that, would that eliminate If they them? did, then it was by God's gr good grace and love that they were able to. Okay, so under I the law, that God was still the one making the choices for them. No, no, no. We never no? say God makes the choices for them. Okay. They make their own choices. Okay. So he, they were making choices. No, 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 no. God makes choices. And he predestined certain things. He even yeah. predestined sin to occur. Uh -huh. Just go to Acts 4, 27, 28. But they're still responsible for what they do. Okay. My brother, I think that there's a hole with this Chorazin and Jesus I weeping. I don't see any hole at all. Yeah, I, the, the they hole, would not. That's consistent with total depravity. Notice hole. that no one's addressing the verses I raised. Because if it says he know. cannot receive them, he cannot understand, then he cannot. If it says that God grants that we believe, then it must be that God grants that we believe. Okay. The questions that should follow then, is, and some of the ones you asked, and I got a whole list of things, which I can answer every one of them. Well, why doesn't God grant it to more? And to be honest, I don't know. Hmm. Why doesn't he elect more? I don't know. Hmm. And no Calvinist should say, in my opinion, should say, oh, it's because he's glorified and they're damning, being damned. You know, come on. I don't know why God doesn't. You will agree more. that Calvinists say that. Though. Some do, and I think they'd be slapped side the head for saying that. Okay, we've got we a lot of callers, so let's yeah. let's move on to Matthew in Pittsburgh. Amen. Matthew, you're on the air. Yes. Do you have a question for one of these gentlemen? Uh, yeah, for uh, both speakers um, regarding uh, total inability, just two texts: uh, John six forty four um, and Romans eight seven through eight, where uh, Jesus and both Paul utilize uh, the Greek term. Uh, udai dunatai or uda dunatai with a negation of ability so that's what the word dunatai means uh, that Jesus says no one has the ability to come to me udai dunatai uh, unless the Father sent me draws him and Paul used that same term uh, in Romans 8 through 8 the mind son the flesh is hostile towards God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so for those in the, who are in the flesh cannot please God both faith and repentance would be pleasing to God. Right? I, I agree with election of God, and I believe that there's nothing that we do to, uh, to merit His grace. I understand all that. The argument is on, I don't think that what you've just argued is on, uh, supports total depravity. Read verse 45 in, in John 6, because I think that talks about exactly how God reaches us. That, what does it say? Do you have that open? Oh, yeah. Um, I can pull that up, right? So read 44, which you used as your proof text, and then read 45. Right. right, and those who hear and learn from the Father come to me. So that's absolute. They don't, it might not be possible, they may or may not come. He just says they will come to me, hey, how uh, they hear and learn. Merle, will you leave that passage up there, just for a second? Mm -hmm. So you use the, the proof text, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, right? Then verse 45 said, it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. And what that implies is that the drawing comes by teaching and preaching, which is supported by a contextual understanding of the rest of Scripture. You use the one verse to talk about the drawing as if it's a spiritual overcoming, that in, but it's all through the preaching and teaching that that's how God set it up. And that's why the apostles, that's what they did. They taught and people heard and chose to respond. Jesus said, unclog your ears, unclog your heart, open your eyes, and you will see. Pray that they will see. It's, it, it was all part of God, yes, reaching, absolutely. And he does, he does reach to those who are his, I agree, and he elects. 
but I would dis I'm just talking about total depravity. No way. We have the ability to hear and we choose to hear or not. We love the darkness more than the light or we love the light more than the darkness. We uh, seek him in spirit and in truth. The Father seeks such to seek him in spirit and in truth. How, what is that about if we are totally depraved? Sorry, Matt. Matt. God commands that which we're not able to do because the standard is God, not man. <clears throat> Excuse me. 1 Peter 1.16, be holy because I am holy. Can any of you be holy? Through Christ, yes. No, that's not what it says. Can you be holy? The answer is no. The only way we can be holy, <clears throat> excuse me, hold on a second. <clears throat> I apologize for that. I've been fighting a little bug today. The only way we can be holy is if we're in Christ. He commands that which we're not able to do. We cannot be holy of ourselves, but he commands it. The reason he does is because he's the standard not man. Everyone ought to repent because God's a standard. Everyone ought not to lie because God's a standard. Everyone ought to be holy because God's a standard. He's going to command that because that's what we ought to do because God's a standard. And I would Whether add, or not we're, we're able to is not the issue. I just want to just show you that I read the scripture too, just like Matt, and when I read that in Peter, be holy, uh, I believe that God doesn't say that just to fill up words because it's his will. That, that Bible is for us to read. It's for us to understand. And so what it says is, how can I be holy? I'm a reprobate. Oh, you mean you sent your son? I can be holy through your son? I can be justified and sanctified through faith on your son? Okay, I get that. Let me look to your son. So we have two different views, two brothers in Christ. There's no need to divide. I'm, the whole point is to show there are other ways to see these things, and we don't need to stand on systems. Okay. But what do you do with the verse that says they cannot understand or receive these things? Like For, the natural man? 1 Corinthians 2.14, he can't. The natural man cannot? Yeah, he can't. natural man can't. Hey, when I'm in my flesh, I can't receive these things. But again, that's poetic. He's talking about, listen, nowhere does that say that we are completely natural and totally uh, uh, incapable. It just says the natural man doesn't receive the things of God. I, I have natural <laughs> friends. They don't care about the things I do. So let me get that straight. So the natural man can't, except when he can. Yeah, okay. exactly, man. Because the, the natural <clears throat> man, you can laugh, but the natural man has the ability to say, you know what? I need God. I am dying here. I, I look to something. He's on my heart. There's something there. I seek him in spirit and truth. So yes, when we're natural, we don't seek the things of God. But that does not prove total inability. Yeah, that's just a, that's just a prepackaged. And system. he says that none seek for him. They're all slaves of sin. They're unholy and full There's of evil. There's none not righteous. I get yeah. that. Yeah. And that they can't receive, but they can. What's the context of that verse? Well, we can go. We can do a Bible study and look at each context. No, you're bringing time. it up. What's the context? Oh, which one? Which, which you verse? just quoted. Which one? I quoted several. You know, the last one you just quoted. I don't remember what the last one was. There's none not righteous. No, not one. It is unrighteous. What's the context? Romans 3, 10, 11, and 12. He's dealing with the issue of the, the Jews in and relationship the, to the Gentiles. That's right. And that none are righteous. That's right. Nobody, that's all it is. And that nobody seeks for God. Nobody. That's right. And so <clears throat> what he's doing is he's saying, listen, Jews, stop holding yourself up as if you're so perfect. The Gentiles are not just the great unwashed. No one goes after it. Nobody but does it mean totally? That's, it doesn't mean, and no, that's, that's read <clears throat> into the text. Well, when it says no one, I... I Assume it means no one. Well, we know that the Hebrews use 
Exaggeration. Yeah, you know that. And that's poetic? Well, what do we take as, I mean, there's passages that talk about, um, you know, they eat my uh, family as bread. Do we take that literal? But that's not Romans 3, 12 in a doctrinal statement, because Romans is a doctrinal book. Matt, you've got to admit that you are not going to be able to take a book written in a different language and understand it perfectly. Not perfectly. Okay, you are but implying. You are implying that you are assigning it perfect understanding, I didn't and you're not. not. Perfect. Okay, but it's, it does say what it says. I see it differently. I'm. Am, this is the point. I, that's my case. Okay, totally I see it differently. Can I? You certainly can. All right. It's am your, I your brother? <laughs> no. Am I your brother? I don't. I, I can't say yes or no to that. And I don't mean. I love this about the Calvinist. No, I no, love no, no, this. No. He can't say I'm his brother. No, there's a reason why. Tell me. And the reason is because in my. I'm going to say this, my love for you, uh -huh. that I've not heard anything that you've said that I've heard others say about you that you've said certain things. Mm -hmm. If what they've said is true, uh -huh. then I have to do that assessment. I haven't done that. But you seem to love Jesus. You know, I can say for the, what I've heard, yeah, you're my okay, brother Okay, well, Christ. let me help you. I yeah. don't believe so. in Calvinism, Arminianism. I believe in total reconciliationism. I don't believe that, I think the second coming happened in 70 AD. I'm a full preterist. Am I your brother? I don't think those things negate you okay, being saved. Thank you. So I thank can, you. I can say within camp of Christ so far. So the point is made. <laughs> this is the point. It doesn't matter, you guys. <laughs> divisions are made. Hatred. I mean, people have been killed over this First stuff. First Corinthians eleven nineteen says divisions must exist among you so the truth can be made known. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and I agree. I believe in the truth, but I don't believe in dividing in the body over things that are non well, I agree with and you. unknowable. I agree with you. And unknowable. That's my point. Unknowable? Yeah, unknowable. I know that we're totally depraved. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> Humor, Let's go to the next caller. It goes a long way, Matt. But I think this seriously. I don't like I, to laugh. I'd offer to wrestle crazy. him over it, but I'd lose. Callers, be patient, please. No. <laughs> Sorry. We have got Patty on line three from Roy. Patty, you're on the air. Do you have a question for one of these gentlemen? Well, um... Yeah, I guess questions and comments, and I hope I'm not going to distract, but as everybody was talking tonight, a couple of passages came to my mind. One is Romans 9, and maybe they mentioned that, where it talks about um, the potter and the clay. And so maybe I'm not understanding that right, but it basically says, you know, mm -hmm. that can the clay, God's the potter and we're the clay, so can the... I guess I should preface by saying I can see correctness maybe in both perspectives. Um, so if God said he's the potter and we're the clay, and can the clay say to the potter, why did you make me this way? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel to honor and one to dishonor? Yeah, and, and I agree with 16, that. It says, so it, then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Absolutely. So I guess my question is maybe I don't understand that correctly. So I believe that God, yeah, predestinates us at particular times to showcase his grace at this time. But I kind of believe that, like when he says, just as by one Adam all fell, so as by the other Adam, which is Christ, shall all be made alive. I How kind many? of feel like... None of us really had a choice when Adam fell. We all were born into a fallen world, not of our own choice. So if Christ came to which it says he paid the sin debt for the entire world, then we don't really have a choice, but we're all going to be saved. It's Amen. just that we can experience the freedom and liberty from bondage in this life. 
if we, you know, if we are, if our eyes are open at this point, and I'm still not sure how all that works. I want to jump in really quickly, Patty. I agree with your assessment, and I, and I agree completely. Potter Clay, I agree with, hey, look, if all through Adam, as Matt interpreted, have become, uh, uh, through the first Adam, have become totally <laughs> depraved, yeah. Then through the second Adam, all have been given life, and he defines the first depravity as spiritual. Then we have to say the second is spiritual life, and so all are saved. Reconciliationism is the only solution. Yes. Matt? Exactly. So I, I, I can kind of see what he's saying, but I totally agree <coughs> with what you're saying, that God is love. And he came and he did it all for us, and it's finished. Amen. Thanks, Patty. We have to yeah, move amen. on. Thanks. Bye-bye. <coughs> Matt? 1 Corinthians 15, 22 is what she cited. Um, in Adam all die, in Christ all should be made alive. You can go to Romans 5, 18, which says, through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, so also through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. There are two sets of alls that are being used. Now, if I were to ask you a question, have you died? The answer would have to be yes, if you've died in Christ. And only the Christians and the believers have died in Christ. We never find any place where unbelievers have died with Christ. Colossians chapter 3, you go to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. We were crucified with Christ, Romans 6, 6. Only the Christians are died with Christ. Now, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. The only ones who have died are the ones who are in Christ. It cannot be that everybody who ever lived died. And that's a whole other thing about universalism we can talk about. The all that God is speaking about are the all that he has called to himself for the purpose. And that is why Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and I will not cast them out and, he, and they will be raised on the last day. Because in the eternal covenant, inter intertrinitarian communion, God gave the elected ones to the Son for the redemptive work. And it's a limited all. And I can show you that from Scripture by doing a Bible study. I agree with time. him. There's no question. Yeah. Limited. We are going to go to John with Tulsa. Good luck. Tulsa. <laughs> Good luck. John, Bring you're your on run. the air. Do you have a question? Yes, I do. Uh, I want to address it to Matt. Uh, why did Jesus, when he was talking to the Pharisees, tell them, if, if, you, if Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre had seen the miracles that I have performed, they would have been in the sackcloth and ashes already and and the pharisees had rejected christ and they were the ones that killed him sadducees pharisees that jewish nation at that time and the thing is this is a matter of time and place when god wills to reveal himself to people the judgment is in the future guys we can't see the future unless you want to call yourself joseph smith but uh, i'm telling you right now that God has a time and a season for everything and in the end all will be in all that's the last chapter of revelations all will be in all and justification will be for all people that ever live God's love will win in the end John do you have a question you have a question yeah his, for question, yeah, his question you want me to repeat it I don't know what his question was oh I do I'll repeat it go ahead John but the question is if if Jesus told the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were questioning him that Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre would have been in sacrifices years ago if they had seen the miracle that you've seen. So that shows right there that it was God's will not to show them at that time. 
But if he had have shown them at that time, they would have been in sackcloth and ashes, and they would have made a choice. He said they would have made the choice, even though they didn't, because it's him that controls the time. It's a matter of times and seasons, and in the end, God's going to win. Great. I think of the comments great. What's his question? Can you uh, form got, that in a phrase of a question? He's making a point rather than a question. I said, why <laughs> did Jesus tell them that? That sack, Okay, that, let, that me, let me jump in. Let me jump people in. People in Sodom and Gomorrah would have been in sackcloth and, and ashes if they'd seen the miracles. We've got to let thanks, you go, John. John. Th thanks so much. He's going to answer now. Because that's what they would have done. Because that's what a God would have ordained. He works all things after the counsel of His will, Ephesians 1.11. He would have worked that, and then they would have repented because that's what would have happened. Can I ask okay, you a question before them we go repentance. to Adnan? Yes. And Sarah, New York, really quickly. Oh, well, you already answered it, Matt. Sorry. Go ahead. Go to Adnan. Yeah. We're going to go to Adnan in Moreno, California. Moreno Valley. Adnan, are you, uh, do you have a question for one of these gentlemen? Adnan, are you there? That's a good question. <laughs> All right, we'll let you. We'll let you try calling back, Adnan. We're going to go to Sarah in New York. Sarah, you're live. Do you have a question for one of these gentlemen? Hello, I have a question for Matt, please. You're live. Go ahead. I'd like to know the purpose of uh, the Great Commission. Thank you for such a short, succinct question. <laughs> He's not used to our callers. Yeah. <laughs> Thank the, you, Sarah. The purpose of the Great Commission is for the Christians to accomplish what God has declared and to bring the elect into salvation by the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. That's what the purpose is. Okay. I just, it doesn't, um, it doesn't make sense to me, the God that... That you're expressing. Okay, well, let me stop. Let me, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on, hold on. No, 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 no. She just insulted me, and I want to bring that out. The God that you are describing. Whenever anybody on my radio show, when they start talking to me like that, I cut them off. Hey, don't be saying that's a different God than the God of Scripture or your God, unless you're a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness. The issue well, is... I'm, I'm trying to understand that... Well, don't say, don't, just, don't say the I, God like you describe as though it's a different God. Okay, but the, it, uh, verse 20 says that, and they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. Of course. If, I evangelize how, a great deal. I have a radio show, a website. I go to Manti. I went to, uh, to uh, the Philippines. I do, did a debate in, um, excuse me, eight minutes. I did a debate just three weeks ago in Atlanta, Georgia. I got to go teach up in Calgary in two weeks. I, I witnessed a great deal. Two and a half years at a swap meet ministry. It pierced my ear, just like a punker. Went down to the beach in Southern California and witnessed the people. I, I believe I, I go door you. to door. I used to, a whole bunch. Because this, I, I don't know. Is this supposed to impress me? No, if I wanted to impress you, I'd say, come to the gym and watch me bench press. <laughs> no, not to impress you. The issue is that I believe this stuff, and yet I go out and do a lot of witnessing. I do a lot of, oh, yeah. of, of preaching of the gospel. Why? Because I believe in the power of the preaching of the Word of God. I don't know how God elects, and I certainly do not know why He does what He does when He does. That's not my concern. My con but He uses you. He uses you. Yes, He does, by His condescending grace. But He won't use another person, ever. He, he's chosen you to use you. He can even use someone like Sean. 
Right, Sean? Sometimes he does. You Sometimes. Can, you can divert the question. Uh, I'm finished. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Well, gentlemen, we don't have any other callers. <laughs> Would you like to take uh, a moment, Matt, and just finish up, and then we'll give Sean a moment? Three minutes. Three minutes? I got a list of stuff here. You got to do a quick three minutes because we're minutes. We're going to keep up, talking so. tomorrow, you guys. We're going to go on four hours okay. tomorrow and then yep. air them on Heart of the Matter for the next uh, few weeks. <clears throat> I just want you to know, I do believe in the great love of God, the great grace of God. You know, because of our depravity, no one's ever going to choose him. He has to intervene and save us. He changes us. He works in us. He gets all the glory that way. Yes, I know about these verses that say repent. He calls us out. And I can, I can trust me, every single question he raised, I can answer. And I'm not saying he's not a smart guy. I'm saying I have, I've heard all of these over the years, and they have answers. I'd love to be able to just teach, stay after, and we'll go through some of them. The thing is, you know what? We both believe that God is sovereign and God's in control. We, what we as Calvinists do is we believe that God is so sovereign and so in control that he calls all the shots, and that we need to submit to his will, that he loves us enough to intercede for us and to save us, that he changes us and enables us to believe. None of us has the question to be able to answer, why doesn't he do that with more? I don't know why. I can't answer that because God does not tell us. But I go out and witness, I go out and do what I can because I know the power of God's word. I know this, this is a paradox. The more I preach, the more people get saved. Why? Because that's what God ordains. Sometimes in my prayers I say, Lord, if that person's not elect, please elect them. Please change them. I'm saying I don't have all the answers, but I do know this. The unbeliever cannot receive these things. Lord, please open his heart and his mind. He's full of sin. Lord, please change him. Lord, please give him the same grace that you gave me. Condescend to him as you did to me. And by your grace, Lord, use him as you've done with me. Why did he choose me and not so-and-so? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just glad he did. And my job is to go out and preach and teach that gospel and let him be the arbiter of salvation and granting repentance. Give that to God. Give him all the glory. And I'm not going to take any of it. Amen. Thanks, Matt. I, I agree what, every, what Matt just said. I think we pray for people to hear. I think we pray that their eyes will open. And I think he calls to all. And I think he does not stop. And he is God, and love does not fail. And uh, if it does, if he stops, if he doesn't redeem, if he doesn't get through whatever means he can, he's losing. I don't think God loses. I, I believe in his sovereignty, too. I just think his sovereignty it coincides perfectly with his description of being love. I don't see how. Uh, we can have sovereignty and love coexisting if he lets most of the world burn forever in an eternal hell. We come into this world and we have sin. It affects our decisions. We kill ourselves. We take drugs. We turn from God. But he is love. He sent his son. His son manifested himself and his son gave us the gospel and the gospel goes out and it continues to go out. Matt is preaching it. He's, he's, we're sharing it the best of our ability, and I think God is victorious, like John said. I think he'll be victorious. Will everyone receive the same rewards? Will all be sons and daughters? Never. Is, am I preaching universalism? Never. I wanted to say one last thing. The doctrines we embrace, they become our character. 
If we embrace Mormons, for instance, they embrace an idea that God was once a man, that Jesus is our elder brother, that we can become gods, and that by our works we can become exalted. That breeds a character in most LDS, not all of them, but it breeds a character of pride because they have kind of put themselves in a place where God is like them, and pride is the result. I was LDS, and so I know. Not all of them, but a lot. Doctrine will form our character. This is not true of Matt, but Calvinism, the byproduct of Calvinism, where God surreptitiously elects some, but not all, saves only some, the rest burn in hell, that creates a system that produces arrogance. Because it allow and, and worst of all, it produces non-love. Now, this is not Matt. But I have never met less loving in the body people who embrace five-point Calvinism ardently. Because if God only elects some, they only need to love some. It carries through in the doctrine. I'm not saying all Calvinists. So if you're a Calvinist and you're loving, fine. I'm sorry. But I'm just talking about general principles here. We become the idols that our doctrine is. You can't let that happen. And so that's why I fight against it. Love you, Matt. Thank you guys for coming. Turn it back over to Mark. How about a round for these guys? Matt Slick, thanks so much for being with us tonight. We want to thank Sean McCraney. We're going to have Rick Walquist come up for a closing prayer. Uh, watch the show next week where it's going to be on unconditional election. These gentlemen are also going to finish up the other five points of Calvinism, so stay tuned for that, and you'll get... Uh, some more great debate, some better understanding. Stay tuned in the upcoming shows, and, uh, and we'll be able to see that. Rick? Thanks, Martin. Great job. Father in heaven, we come to you this night, and thank you for the opportunity we had to be here to listen to these two uh, great men speak. Uh, we pray that we would have your spirit to be with us, that we might discern your word and your, your spirit, that we would know uh, your will for us. Lord, we love you. We're grateful for you for the... Um, uh, the amazing uh, blessing it is to have uh, the Word and our Savior Jesus Christ uh, as our Lord and Savior and pray that we would con uh, carry that with us uh, uh, the remainder of our lives and throughout this that we might be able to take that to others and uh, Lord we love you and are grateful for you and this we say in Jesus name, Amen. Amen. Are we off the air? Thanks brother. All hey right. we'd like to thank the video audience for watching tonight and the, the studio audi audience uh, uh, God bless you guys for coming please be safe on your drive home thanks again tune in next week on Heart of the Matter I'm on a ride going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light. Start.